Collett, and he's the young man that we were paying for that had collapsed lung. He's still not back in the airplane. Good at that. What kind of test do you have to pass? To blow up the balloons if you have the power to do that? Or what is it? Reaching. <laughs> Put you in a hyperbaric chamber? What, you, what, what, what process do you have to go through? Huh? FAA has to deal with it. So uh, we're dealing with bureaucracy there. So uh, next year, we'll let you know what happens whether you ever got it. <laughs> well, I want to say amen to what Bob said about Joy Davis's book review. And for those of you who were men, you really showed your masculinity yesterday attending the book review with 100 women. And there were only, how many men would you say were here, Bob? About six or seven or eight or 10 or what would you say? The real men. The real men. Yeah. That's, that's all I have. Uh, it really was. I mean, it was a. It was a great. Maybe I really enjoyed it more than some, more than all of her other books. I was going to say some of them, but I think all of them. So anyway, let's take our Bible. We are in Psalm 101, in our series called Psalms for the Summer. And each summer we go through about 15 psalms, and then 15 to 17 psalms, and we hope that we'll be finished. All 150 psalms by the summer of 2018. So that's our goal. Two more years, three summers. And uh, then when we finish this series, then what we'll do is we will uh, or finish the series for this summer. We will go back to Isaiah, and we'll go into that again for a period of time before we go back into the New Testament. Okay, so Psalm 101. There is a superscription over top of that psalm, and it says this, a psalm of David. So what we believe is, now this is not an inspired part of the text, but it's very ancient, and it tells us what people, you know, nearly 2,000 years ago believed about this text. And they say they believe that King David wrote this text. And what we think of is when we look at the words in the text, is that David wrote this either right before his coronation as king or right after his coronation as king. And what it constitutes is a series of promises that he makes before God and to God about how he's going to run his administration. So today we would call that campaign promises. Unfortunately, campaign promises often are very short-lived. So what we're going to do is we're going to go through these campaign promises. These are all future-oriented. For example, when you read verse 1, he says, I will sing of mercy and justice. This is what he says he's going to do. And if you look at verse 2, you'll see this future orientation. I will behave wisely. See that? Look at verse for example, I will set nothing wicked before me. Uh, sort of end of verse 4, I will not know wickedness. And you see all these uh, what things that he's going to do. In verse 8, I will destroy uh, all the wicked of the land. These are campaign, uh, campaign promises of how he intends to be a godly king. Um, I think this has a lot of implications for us today especially in the church. You get a new pastor, you have expectations from the pastor, the pastor gets up, usually in his first sermon, gives you a vision of his church, tells you what he intends to do, oftentimes they fail greatly. 
uh, has great application for us being in a presidential campaign right now. We have two major candidates. In fact, we have probably three candidates that are still fighting, uh, and they're making promises. This is what you sort of you listen to their speeches and you you get a sense of what their administration is going to be like, at least according to how they the promises they make. Okay. So these are what we call statements of intent. These are the king's intentions. So let's look at the first one. <clears throat> look what he says. I will sing of mercy and justice. Uh, this is what's going to be on his lips. Uh, he's going to be talking about two things and singing about two things. He's going to be singing about mercy, God's mercy. He's going to be singing about justice, or some translations say judgment. These are two what we call covenant words. Okay. Covenant words are words that are associated uh, with a contract that God made with Israel when he formed them as a nation. He said, I will bless you if you do certain things. And now if you're basically, you know, are faithful to me, even though you slip. I will bless you and I will show you mercy. However, as a nation, if you turn your back on me, I'm going to show you judgment or justice. So these words, mercy and justice or judgment, are covenant words. And David says, you know, I'm going to be singing about mercy. I'm going to be God's representative on earth and I'm going to be extending mercy as his hand extended. Because the king represents God. He says, I'm going to be extending God's mercy upon people who keep the covenant, but I will be judging people who do not keep the covenant. So that's what he's talking about here. And then he says in verse, in the verse 1, he says this, uh, To you, O Lord, that's the co God's covenant name. Remember that from last week? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. When God establishes his covenant, he reveals himself by that name, which is Yahweh or Jehovah. And this is their English translation of it, Lord with all caps. He says, I will sing uh, to you, O Lord, I will sing praises. So, David promises to recognize God, keep God in his focus, sing praises to God, and uh, serve God by emphasizing <coughs> justice. That's his first promise. I'm going to be a man of God. I'm going to do his will. And God's praises will never leave my lips. How many... Can uh, presidential candidates run as, as Christians? And boy, in the campaign, they sound like Christians. But are they real? You know, it's very interesting to me, and those of you who are old enough remember the name Dwight D. Eisenhower, great general who became the President of the United States. You know one of the first things he actually did? He didn't make this promise, but you know one of the first things he actually did when he became President? He got baptized. He said, I want to make a public statement as President of the United States that I'm going to serve God. Now, he had been a pretty rough character. And we believe he had a mistress. But when he became President, one of the first acts was that he was baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So that's sort of interesting. So that's what David, in a sense, makes this promise. He either does it right before he's coronated or right after he... Uh, is inaugurated as the king. Now look at verse 2. If uh, verse 1 deals with his 
you know, confession or whatever, look at verse 2 deals with his conduct. This is resolution or promise number two. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. And look at the end of verse 2. I will walk within my house with a perfect heart. Now, we don't know whether this is a promise to, to walk perfectly and live perfectly, uh, behave perfectly in public or in private. Uh, because you see the word house there? The end of verse 2, what's he say? I will do what? I will walk perfectly uh, within my house. So does, does this mean that you can count on me to be a good family man? If you look at presidents and look at their family life, look at John F. Kennedy's family life, look at Lyndon Johnson's family life, you know, uh, is that what we're talking about here? Look at Clinton's family life. Is he making a promise to be, when he says my house, is he talking about my, my home within my family? I'm going to be a godly father and godly husband? Is that what he's talking about? Or does this family refer to his administration and his government? Now, I think probably the government. So, the house of David. Uh, doesn't mean the temple. The temple wasn't built when David was king. The tabernacle was still in existence when David was king. So that's not the house of David. If I say like in Saudi Arabia, the house of Saud. What am I talking about? I'm talking about a family that does what? Controls a nation. They control a government. And I think that's what he's trying to say here. And uh, you know, this is a very difficult passage to interpret, but I think he's saying, I will behave wisely in a perfect way. So that deals with these actions. Would you say that? Behave. That deals with these actions. This is what he'll do. And then look at the end of verse 2. I will walk within my house with a perfect what? Heart. So one deals with these actions, that's behavior, and the other one deals with an attitude. You see that? That is his heart. A perfect way and a perfect, a perfect way and a perfect heart. So one is what he'll do, and next is how he'll do it. He says, I will run my administration, the house of David. <laughs> The administration under me in an upright way. Let's put it that way. And then right in the middle of the verse, there's an interjection. Look what he says right in the middle of verse 2. Oh, when will you, that's God, come to me? He's basically saying, here's the promise that I make, but guess what I need? I need your presence and your power to pull it off. Now, one of the interesting things is when a king was inaugurated, one of the things they did is they anointed him with oil. That anointing was representative of power, the power of the Holy Spirit. But the king, and when David got, when David was inaugurated, they anointed him with oil. But guess what? Being anointed with oil is a symbol. Guess what David wants? He wants the reality. He wants the power. He wants the presence of God. And, and he realizes this. So in between, he makes this promise, I will behave wisely. That's his actions in a perfect way. I will walk 
within my house, within my administration in a perfect way. That's his promise. And then sort of you can just see him under his breath cry, oh God, help me to keep this promise. So this is his, this deals with conduct in a sense. Now look at verse 3. He says this, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Look at that. I will set nothing. These are these, these things that he's considering. He said, I'm, I'm not going to set anything wicked before my eyes. Now what does he mean by, I will not put anything wicked before my eyes. Does he mean wicked plans, wicked strategies, wicked people? What is he saying? I will not have these in my life. I mean, I think it has to be one of those. Wicked is not a noun, is it? What is wicked? It's an adjective. What does an adjective do? It describes a noun, but there's no noun here. So what's he saying? I will have no wicked plans in front of my eyes. I'll have no wicked people in front of my eyes. I'll have no wicked what? See, that's why this is a very difficult passage to interpret. We're not sure what he's talking about there, what, what kind of wickedness he's talking about. Strategies, plans, schemes uh, that his administrators bring, his advisors bring. You know, if you're a president of the United States, you have all these advisors, and guess what? Everyone has a plan and a strategy. And some are a little, <laughs> a little edgy, <laughs> a little suspect, you know? Everybody has their own agenda. Is that what he's saying? I will not allow any of my advisors wicked plans. I won't consider those things. We're just not sure. Look what else he says in verse 3. I hate, and I think this gives you a little idea, maybe what the first line means. Verse 3. I hate the work of what? Those. See, notice what he's talking about. He's talking about people, isn't he? I think the wickedness that he won't have in front of his eyes, the wicked plans that people bring to him. Look what he says. I will not have the work of those who fall away. I hate the work of those who fall away. So I think the wickedness has to deal with the wicked work. Now look at that phrase, those who fall away. This would refer to people in his government that turn their back on God. What we would call apostates. They, they leave the faith. A lot of people make claims, but once they get to power, they leave the faith. And here he's got these advisors, and here's what he says. I hate the work, that would be the wicked work, of those who fall away. Look at the end of verse 3. It, their wicked work, shall not, what? Cling to me. Do you see that? So I think this is these, these promises that he is making. And this is why the vetting process is so important when you're putting together an administration. You better know who these people are before you bring them in and put them in your cabinet. Because once they get in power, and once people get a little bit of power, their true personality comes out. Either they operate humbly or they become arrogant. You know, and once you have power, do you want to let go of power or do you want to hold on to power? And you're going to see how these people try to hold on to power. He says, I will not allow that influence in my sight. And I will not tolerate those kinds of people. That's what he's basically saying. Look at verse 4. He says, a perverse heart shall depart from me. The word perverse means a crooked heart, a twisted heart. Will, will depart from me. I will not know wickedness. A perverse heart will depart from me. I'm not going to allow that kind of thinking 
and advice in my presence. You know, you can't stop a bird, you've heard this statement, haven't you? You can't stop a bird from landing on your head. But you can stop it from building a nest in your hair. So he says, I'm going to end up having some bad advisors and bad people in my cabinet, but guess what? I'm not going to tolerate them. What is he going to do? He's going to get rid of them. You see that? Now think about some men, like presidents, who've had good family lives. If the house dealt with personal life that we saw in verse 1 or 2. Jimmy Carter. He had a good family life, didn't he? But what kind of people did he have as advisors? <coughs> Hamilton, Jordan, just think about these, I can start naming them off. Richard Nixon had a pretty good family life in the sense that he had good daughters, you know. Now, he wasn't a good husband necessarily, but the family was pretty stable. But look at these advisors. They weren't the best advisors in the world. What kind of people were they? People that were conniving, people that had secret plans, you know, ambitions. A lot of yes men. You always have to watch out for the yes men. It's the people who just tell you the truth. You see. And so what he says is that a twisted heart, and we don't know if he's talking about even if he has a twisted plan in his heart, or whether he's talking about the advisors, that shall depart from me. I will not know, I will not experience, I will not allow crookedness and wickedness to remain. I will not know it. I'm not going to embrace that, you see. And then the next resolution that he makes is in verse 5. Look at this one. Whoever secretly slanders his neighbor, him I will what? Now, I don't think he's just talking about people in the neighborhood. Say, hey, did you see what Joe did over in New York? I'm not talking about that. A king can't know what every person in his kingdom when they say something about a neighbor, can So far, I think he's talking about his advisors and people in his cabinet. And I think what he's saying here is that he will not allow anyone in his cabinet. Look how he describes it there. Whoever secretly, you see that? Secretly slanders his neighbor. That person I will destroy. Now, if this is talking about... In his administration, he's talking about those who are secretly passing on rumors about other people in the administration. And that happens all the time in administrations, doesn't it? We call them leaks. You're going to leak something to the press about somebody over here. Why do you do that? Why do you leak something about, secretly leak something to the press over here about that person? Why do you do that? Because you want to hurt that person, don't you? You want to build yourself up. You want to build a case for yourself in front of the president, in front of the, the person who's the leader of the land. You see, and I think that this is what David's talking about. These are people who are secretly leaking and spreading rumors within the administration uh, to lift themselves up, elevate themselves. And he's not going to put up with it. He says what he's going to do in verse 5, he said, I'll destroy them. Now, what does he mean by destroy them? Does he think he means I'm going to kill every one of them? You think he means I'm going to destroy their life, I'm going to destroy their careers, I'm going to destroy their, their reputation. You know, I think we're going to find out a little bit what he's going to do, what that word destroy means when you read the rest of verse 5 of what he says. The one who has a haughty look and a proud heart, him I will not what? 
I won't endure, I won't put up with that person. So what I think he's doing is he says, I am going to purge my administration of those people who are spreading rumors and trying to put this person down to build themselves up and be arrogant and proud. Happen. And uh, pride and arrogance and self-serving have no place in a godly administration in the nation of Israel. A lot of people get into politics for good reasons. Uh, they start out because they want to serve people. Uh, but in time, guess what happens? I've seen people say, well, I'm only going to be run for one term or two terms. And what happened? They're in there 30 years later. They're 97 years old and they're still <laughs> casting votes. They start looking out for number one. And boy, when they do get out of office and they're knocked out of office, at least in America, what do they immediately do? Go home and retire? No, are you kidding me? They've made so many connections, and so they're, they're power brokers, and they, they never move out of their house in Washington, D.C. So what we have here is we have David promises here to purge his administration of these people who are causing trouble. Either they have these crooked plans, or they're you know, casting uh, rumors, throwing rumors about other people. Now look what he says in verse 6. My eyes shall be on the faithful of the land. Do you see that? Look what he's going to do to those who are unfaithful, those who fall away, those who spread rumors. He's going to get rid of those, isn't he? But look what he's going to do on those who are faithful in the land. On the land there doesn't mean the whole land. It means the capital, in the capital, Jerusalem. Look what he says. He says, my eyes shall be on the faithful of the land. And now look at this purpose statement right here that they may what? Dwell or remain with me. You see that? He's going to keep those people. So notice what he promises to do. If we were saying this was a, a campaign promise or once he got into office, this was, was the resolution he made. If we summed it up in one sentence, it would be this. I'm not going to tolerate any corruption in my administration. And people who are out to serve themselves. I'm going to expunge my administration of those people. Those who are faithful, and that would be faithful to God and faithful in service, those people will dwell or abide with me. They will remain in my administration. So he has to keep his eyes out. He has to be an observant leader. He can't be one who just delegates and then doesn't hold people responsible. The worst thing, there's two kinds of bad leaders. One is the one who's a micromanager and watches every single thing, and then tells the people that he's delegated jobs to how to do the job. That's terrible, micromanagement. The other mistake that a leader makes is when he or she uh, delegates and then doesn't hold the people responsible for doing the job. And he says, I'm not going to be either one of those, but I am going to be observant. I'm going to keep my eyes on people, and I'm going to find out who does the good job and who does the bad job. Those who do a bad job are out. Those who do a good job are in. So we see a contrast in verse 6 with those in verses 2 or 3 through 5 right there. There's a big contrast between the two kinds of people. Now, this tells us something. Now, today we don't have... America's not the people of God. England's not the people of God, the government of God. Israel was the government of God. If there's any government of God on earth today, it's the church, isn't it? 
The church is the people of God. We live according to kingdom rules. Uh, but there are governments who claim to be Christians. In other words, that's their heritage. Great Britain has a Christian heritage. America has a Christian heritage. And so, whether you're talking about the church or government, these are some good little principles to go by. And you can learn something from these principles. For example, if it's, whether it's the church or, or the, like the American government, is you should choose good people, right? You should choose good people to serve with you. In the church, uh, when Paul says it's time to choose leaders in the church, uh, elders and deacons, what does he do? Remember what he does? First Timothy and Titus? He gives them a list of qualifications, doesn't he? He says, this is how you vet a person. Here's the vetting process. He gives a whole list. He says, look for people who have these kinds of qualities, and these are the kinds of people that you should put in your government or in your church leadership. Look what else he says in verse 7. He who works deceit, notice that's not David, he's talking about, oh, did I finish verse 6? Yes, shall serve me. I didn't finish verse 6. He who walks in the perfect way shall serve me. See, it's serving David. You see that? Serving in his administration. Now, verse 7. He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. Do you see that? He who works deceit shall not dwell within my house. This is why we know it's not his home. So, what he does is he says that those who do well will serve me, and those who do not do well will not dwell within my house. He goes on to say in verse 7, He who tells lies shall not continue in my presence. This is why I believe it's his administration, or it's his cabinet. Notice the word not is used twice there in verse 7. He who works deceit shall not dwell in my house. He who lies, tells lies shall not continue in my presence. So we see that these are people who are continually doing this. Not somebody who slips out or something like that. He's not talking about that. But what he'll do is he's going to get rid of these people. Then in verse 8, it's a very interesting verse. Here's what he says. Early I will destroy all the evildoers of the what? City. Do you see that? Of the land, of the city of Yahweh, of the Lord. Early in early, I will destroy. We know that doesn't mean destroy. It means he will not endure. From verse 5, we know that. He will not endure all the wicked of the land that they that may that I may cut off all the workers. Look at this. That I may cut off all the workers of the what? City of the Lord. You see that? So let's look at that first part. Early I will destroy all the wicked of the land. The wicked ones. Probably his advisors. I will get rid of them. Notice, notice when he's going to do it. Early. Do you see that? Early. Not later. Early. Early on. In fact, what when the king made these kinds of decisions and made judgments, he did it in the morning. They come right in the office and he'd make the decision right in the morning. And we know that from uh, Jeremiah chapter 21, and one after this afternoon you can look up Jeremiah 21 uh, and tell us that he says, early in the morning I will judge. I will make these kinds of decisions. So here he says, early I will destroy all the wicked. Earlier rather than later. 
Now the purpose statement. Why are you going to do that, David? That I may cut off all the what? Evil <coughs> from the city, from the capital city, that's Jerusalem, of the Lord. This is God's city, and therefore we need to have an administration that is God. Okay, so let me just say a word here. These are the king's intentions. This is what he plans to do. Okay? Now I want you to know when you go to Psalm 102, you discover that he fails to do it. Okay? Look what he says in Psalm 102. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and let me cry. Let my cry come to you. Do not hide your face from me in the day of my what? Trouble. Incline your ear to me. And he goes on. He says, look at verse 3. For all the day my days are consumed like smoke, and my bones are... Look, this guy's in trouble by Psalm 102. He's in trouble. You know why he's in trouble? Because he's not kept his resolutions. And it's the same thing that you'll see in Psalm 102. Three. So we have a guy here who has, has intentions, good intentions, and he's made resolutions, but often they fail to keep their resolutions or their campaign problems. And so what starts out as a good administration ends up a bad administration. To keep a king in tow. To keep a king true to his word, God raised up prophets. That's how he did it. And this prophet spoke for God to the king. So Nathan says to David, <laughs> David, thou art. And that was to get the king's attention, to get the king back on track. Now, today, God doesn't have an official government in the world. And therefore, God doesn't have political prophets to hold of an official office like Nathan. Like Nathan. But he still has spiritual watchdogs in every government and in every church. Back in the uh, 1600s, early 1600s in England, there was a man named George Villiers. And he was the Duke of Buckingham. He was a Puritan, which means he was a Christian, versus being Catholic. He was a reformer, part of the Puritan movement. They kicked out King Charles, disposed him, and put in <coughs> Oliver Cromwell. Do you remember that whole story? They put in an entire Puritan government. And then the Puritans did such a bad job that people cried, cried, give us King Charles back. We want King Charles. And so King Charles came back, and then he was followed, of course, in time by King James of the King James Bible. And that's when Villiards lived. He lived during the time of King James. And whenever a new king came on the throne or new members of the parliament were seated, he would write them a letter of advice about their political promises. And he would send them a copy of Psalm 101 on the first day that they entered office. Just so they would have this before them and realize the seriousness of serving God and serving the land. 
Now, whether it's a president, or whether it's a king, or whether it's a pastor of a church, uh, leaders don't like to be called on the carpet. You know that? They want yes people around them. They want people who will affirm their plan and say, yes, yes, sir, yes, sir. <coughs> and so what they want in government is they want court chaplains who will bless their plans. They don't want prophets who will stand up and call them to task. They want court chaplains and uh, those who will support them. That's the difference between a Billy Graham and a Martin Luther King, by the way. Billy Graham was a friend to all the presidents. He was like a chaplain. Martin Luther King was like a prophet. And which one do you think the presidents liked? Which ones do you think they didn't like? Of course, Billy Graham's name was tarnished when the Nixon tapes were released. Just a couple of years ago, those ones, a lot of them had not been released, were being released, released by the Library of Congress. And here's Nixon on the phone. He calls, it, calls up Billy Graham. He starts cursing out the Jews. And Billy Graham says, yes, the Jews you can't trust. And you know, why would Billy Graham say that? Does he believe it? I don't think he believed it for a second. But guess what? He wanted to be friend. He wanted to be a friend of a president, where, as opposed to a prophet. Now. In America, we do not have prophets as such. But our fathers realized the importance of holding a government's feet to the fire. And in the Constitution, they assigned the role of a prophet to the press. The right the press, of the press, freedom of the press. And the role of the press, as intended by the forefathers, was to be an investigative force and tell the truth about any administration. And so and originally, in America, the land of the free, the press was to be to serve in the role of the prophet. But, guess what happens? Presidents and people in power get to know the publishers of certain presses. And before long you have certain newspapers and presses that are for a certain person. Let's say like a CNBC or something like that. And then you have another side that are against a certain person. Let's say like a Fox or something. So you end up having not just an honest press, so-called, quote, objective press that's doing investigative reporting and letting the chips fall where they might, but you end up having a press that takes sides, this side against those, and then they will just go hunt for things on that side and report it. Doesn't matter whether it's true or not, report it. And then the press on that side does the exact same thing. So now in America, guess what we don't have? We have no one taking the role of profit. Only those things decide of leaders. Now, it's not unique to the United States. I mean, I think that in all governments you have that. But, so what happens is you have these promises. 
David fails at the promises, and fortunately, there are prophets of God who stand up and say, David, thou art the man who came back to the world. You say, well, man, no one doing that today. So what does this say? Well, this, in a sense, conveys the heart of a man who wants to have a perfect government, which the scripture says points to in a sense, this psalm points to that time in the future <clears throat> when God's perfect king will come and take over and indeed carry out his political promises. And so this, in a sense, is a points to the failure of man and to that perfect kingdom when Jesus Christ will reign uh, in the Father's kingdom. So next week what we'll do is we'll go into Psalm 102 and we'll see how David ends up getting into trouble, does not keep his political promises, and then has to cry for God to get him out of the trouble. And that's what we'll pick up next week. Lord, we thank you for a, a passage here that doesn't have relevance for us, whether we are church leaders, whether we are a deacon board, elder board, or whether we are talking about a government that claims to be under, that claims to recognize you and attempts to serve you. These are examples, Lord, of promises. And we see just in this context, these two psalms, how promises can be broken and governments can get themselves into a mess. Oh, Lord, help us as believers Oh, our leaders in the church. Uh, to do that which is right and not do that which is wicked, not do that which is twisted. Help us to realize, Lord, that we need to have people around us that are not just yes people, but that are your people. So, Lord, help us to take these truths to heart, apply them to our lives in Christ's name. Amen.